All right, Romans chapter 12. All right, so we're going to read the last few verses of chapter 11. Uh, I want to remind you of the the doxology. Um, So chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, But all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Okay, so there's the general head that we start out. We go from the doxology into this hinge verse into general instruction, and there's a list of things to apply that to. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patience in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice at the top of the handout, I wrote one word that wasn't a typo. Just prove. I'm trying to emphasize that. I'm trying to emphasize that. When we look at verses 1 and 2, what you're going to see is that there's that word prove there. And that word prove 
is about how we do what we've been told to do in the hinge verse. So let me reread those verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The principal point that the Apostle Paul is explaining in these verses, and that the Holy Spirit intends to communicate, is that you need to know the Word of God well enough that you can prove that you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And if you can prove it by being able to argue it from Scripture, then you know how to offer your body as an acceptable, holy sacrifice. And you can fulfill your purpose in life. If you cannot prove if you cannot prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, then you cannot offer a rational service. You cannot offer a reasonable service. You cannot offer service in faith. So this is the principal point. Prove. 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 The rest of what we're going through here is to help us to understand this. But that's not the emphasis people normally give when going through this text. But it is absolutely, certainly the emphasis of the text. It is the point of the text. It's what it's saying. It's what God is saying. Now the background when we come to this. The book of Romans has been teaching us God is righteous as a judge. It's given us a righteous law, and we're breakers of the law. We're guilty. God has provided himself as a righteousness. He's provided Christ as a righteousness that is imputed to the believer. So we have the righteousness of God given to us as an external thing, as a legal thing, as a credited thing, as a matter of accounting and business. It's a transactional thing. The great exchange, our guilt for his righteousness. Because of our standing in the righteousness of Christ, we internally are being transformed with an imparted righteousness as we're being sanctified. We're being altered inwardly. And we're talking now about the transformation and then the fruits of that transformation that come in terms of the body being a sacrifice to God. This results in God governing all of history to bring about the display of his glory, including in the government of nations. That God in history planned to have one nation set apart for himself and planned to bring in the nations that were separated at Babel. That that table of nations that divided would be brought into the kingdom. That the kingdom of man would be displaced by the kingdom of God. And when that is done... Christ returns in splendor and glory and judges the living and the dead. And the righteousness of God is on display in the day of judgment. 
So the righteousness of God has been a theme, and we get to now, okay, what are the means that we're supposed to use? How are we supposed to go about doing this in chapter 12? And so, just before this, there is this call to remember sort of a capturing doxology that summarizes these key points. God is the origin of everything. God is the effectual causer of everything. And God is the goal of everything. Right? That's of him and through him and to him are all things. And so, Paul beseeches us, he urges us, he exhorts us. The root there, the idea of beseeching, you know, the word paraclete has to do with the comforter or the Holy Spirit. This is like paracleting. Okay, this is the, this is the Greek term there. Exhorting is speaking in such a way as to impart strength. Exhortation is about strengthening. So Paul is moving on to say, do action now. So I'm speaking to you, and I am speaking to you in such a way that I am imparting strength. So I impart strength to you. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? He's, he's appealing to this idea that the mercy of God has saved us, and it's going to give us the power of sanctification, and it's also a motivating power, right? You go from your guilt to the grace of God, and from the grace of God, you should be grateful. And so there's a motivating power of the grace of God, the mercies of God. And so there's this appeal here. I give strength to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your rational service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right, there's, there's taking on the form of the world, and, and the language there is such that it's sort of referring to being put into a mold, the external forming into a mold. And so you think about you put clay into a mold, and it takes on that shape. And what happens if you put a living creature into a mold and seek to push it in, to take on the shape? It's a deadening action. And so this language... The, the language that's transformed, we have this contrast, being conformed to this world, which we lose the shape that God has given to us. We lose the form that God has given to us, the design. And we take on this, this self-worshipping world, this in submission to Satan and worldliness and the flesh, this deadness is the form we take on. But we're called to be transformed. The, the root word there is the same as like metamorphosis. So think about the difference between going into a mold to take on a shape versus the way a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. That's a transforming of shape that doesn't kill. In fact, it's making more glorious. And so this idea of a metamorphosis, a transformation in such a way that preserves the life and enhances the life, to a more mature state, a more glorious state, a more powerful state. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how do you take on this new form? How does your body become a sacrifice? How does your body take on the actions that are proper to its nature, that are proper to its construction and design, that serve the purpose of glorifying God in the world? And it's by the renewing of the mind, it's by the transforming of the inward man that the outward man's actions are transformed. And so, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, let's run through in more detail. Okay, this is the sense of this text. This is the hinged text. We're going into the idea of exercising the strength, the power that's been given to us. Exhortation is about speaking in such a way as to give strength. You remember down lower where Paul says those who exhort with exhortation. He's saying those who impart strength do it by imparting strength strongly. Okay? Exhortation shouldn't be the same thing as milk toast speaking. Exhortation ought to be exhortation. If you make teaching doctrine the same thing as exhortation, then you lose the power of both. Okay, so mild-mannered people, teaching mild-mannered people to be more mild-mannered is not exhorting with exhortation. And so the difference between the church and the world and between the flesh and the spirit, between Christ and Satan, must be magnified. And so a sharp speaking, a polemic speaking, is what's necessary. So exhortation, what Paul is doing here is he's drawing out the contrast and he's speaking in such a way as to give strength. The therefore is in the context of the gospel and it's in the context of the doxology. And he's saying, okay, the gospel leads to gratitude for a guilty people. So let me remind you, you're guilty. God saved you. Be grateful. Don't be ingrates. Don't be idiots. This is the only reasonable thing to do. This is the rational service. The foolish service, the stupid service, the insane service is the service to yourself and to Satan and to the world. It's a killing mold that will crush you into submission outwardly to meaningless service. But the transformation that occurs by increasingly knowing God is a life-giving, beauty-giving, power-giving transformation. And it will cause you to be useful rather than useless. Reasonable rather than unreasonable. And so that's the power of the Word of God. All things are from God. He plans everything. So, do your plans take that into account? All things are by the power of God. Do you think there's counsel against God? Do you think that there's actions that can effectively rebel against God? All things are to God. Which kind of to God would you rather be? The to God by you being miserable justly? Or the to God by you enjoying Him out of mercy? Therefore, we also should acknowledge that our origin is from God. God controls us. God has designed us for the end, the goal, the purpose of His glory. In other words, Get strong and do the only reasonable thing to do in the context of being made by God, controlled by God, and made for God. Serve Him rationally in the way that He has appointed. Now, jump to point four. Present your body as a living sacrifice. The idea of presenting your body as a living sacrifice, if if you go to Leviticus, the idea that people bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle. Now let me tell you what normally happens to the sacrifice. It gets killed. 
Sometimes it's burned. Other times it's eaten. That's about it. Killing, burning, eating. That's what happens to the sacrifice. We're being told to be poured out, to lay down our lives, to die, to be consumed in this service. The idea of picking up your cross. Now, this is called a rational service. And so in order for it to be a rational service as opposed to an irrational service, you have to think that this is in your interest. And so the sale here is the idea that it's better for you to give up your life in the service of God than to seek to hold on to it for yourself. That in fact, the best way to use your life for yourself is to sacrifice your life to God. And to take your body and put it into the service, into that action. Now, remember the guy who's talking here. What happened to Paul? He got beat frequently. He's been stoned and not with marijuana. He has been attacked. He has been insulted. His reputation has been attacked. Right? What we see happening here is this man is a man who knows what it is to be beaten, who knows what it is to be poured out, who knows what it is to sacrifice his body with the expectation that if I die, I die. I don't know if today is that day or not. And so the idea that the life should be poured out, your body is not the good. The pleasure of your body is not the good. You will get older whether you want to or not. The alternative is you die. And so your body and holding on to your body to use it for the seeking of your own desires and the seeking of your own pleasure is a foolish exchange. The rational thing to do, the rational service to give is to give your body as a living, living sacrifice. To give your body as a living sacrifice. To present it like a sacrifice for God. You're offering it to God. Now let's think about the different types of offerings, the different types of sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple system. There's the sin offering. You are not giving your life as a sacrifice to pay for your own sins. Jesus Christ was the perfect sin offering. He paid for all of your sins. You are to turn away from your sin, which is based upon you desiring false gods, a false view of the good, and turning toward God as the good. And you do that by recalling that Christ has paid for all your sins, and therefore there's nothing left to pay for. Now, the burnt offering is about holiness. The sin offering is about atonement. The burnt offering is about holiness. And so, the principal thing to think about here is actually the burnt offering. Paul is saying, you should take your body, and you should think of it like a burnt offering that's offered up to God. And so you offer yourself for the slaughter and to be burned. Now the idea is that this is a pain and a difficulty that occurs in this life and it's temporary. And it's a very short amount of time to suffer in exchange for an everlasting weight of glory. Now again, this is not a sin offering. You're not offering your life to save yourself from hell. You have been saved from hell. And now the rewards are so worth it that it's worth this suffering in this life. And here's the other thing about this. This suffering in this life makes suffering less awful. 
When you suffer with a rational service, when you have a goal in mind, it reduces the pain of pain. When you have a goal in mind, you can get through pain more easily. Pain without purpose versus pain with purpose. Anybody who's an athlete here has suffered to try to win a crown. If you have ever gone through a difficult service in order to accomplish something, worked hard to get a raise, to get a bonus, to try to accomplish something and bring something about, if you've sought hard after a wife and gained her, right? these are the things we work to get things. And there's suffering in the process. The idea is that you are to present yourself and to be willing to suffer for the mission, for the goal, and that that will be a better reward. And there will even be rewards in this life. We're told by the Apostle Paul, and we're told by Jesus, that there are rewards in this life. And so not only are the pains less awful, but there's more joys, and the joys are higher. So the combination of these things, when you devote yourself to the service of God, it makes it so that there is a better taste to all flavors. Now the peace offering... The peace offering is about there's been forgiveness, there is holiness, and now we're sharing together in the good and we're sharing together in the mission. And so the peace offering is a manifestation of that. You think about that in the Lord's Supper, right? You, you share together in consuming Christ and you're sharing together in a commitment to pursue the good, to pursue the glory of God. And then you think about the grain offering. The grain offering is about thanksgiving. In the context of forgiveness, the grain offering is about thanksgiving. And so Paul has already said, appealing to the mercies of God, you know, hey, be thankful. And offer yourself. And so there's meaning in the sacrifices. Now this is this is where he's drawing our minds. To present, go to point five on page three, present your bodies a living sacrifice that's holy. Now, holiness is about being marked out for a purpose. Holiness is about not being used for anything else, lest the holy thing not be available for its purpose. Right? So, if you're holy unto something, you don't also get used for something else. If you're holy unto something, you don't also get used for something else. And so the idea here is you're to be devoted in all things to the glory of God. Holiness is about devotion, distinction, focus on the goal. We are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy unto God. We are to set our bodies apart from all things except for the service of God. Our bodies are to be a sacrifice to God that is devoted to God. We are to claim no absolute ownership of ourselves, but rather view our bodies as deposits entrusted to us as instruments given over for the single-minded goal of obedience to the detailed service of God. For the purpose of making our whole lives an intricate display of God's glory. We have but a stewardship, a delegated ownership over ourselves. That's what the stewardship is for. Now this devotion, this holiness, is the direction of happiness. We already said this is the rational service. The pursuit of this goal is how you grow in joy We will never lastingly be happy except by devoting our lives to the glory of God by the detailed service of applying His law to every thought, word, and deed. The degree to which we apply His law 
is the degree to which we can expect to have joy even in the midst of calamity. So this holiness is a focus on God, a mission focus. Now, what does it mean for this living sacrifice to be holy and acceptable, to be acceptable to God? Okay, so we sacrifice our bodies, and it's not only that, but also our, our bodies are devoted to the goal of the glory of God, which is the holiness. But it's not only that. It's sacrifice to God, your body. Focus your body on the goal. And do it by using the appointed means. He doesn't just say, get to St. Louis. He says, get to St. Louis by taking this particular highway at this particular speed using this kind of gas. That's what God says. That's the kind of instructions that he gives. He tells us how to accomplish the goal and what the means are and what the motive is. The goal, the way to get there, the means, the motive. Now, sacrifice that's holy and acceptable. Go to point D, 6D. The detailed application of the law must be added to explain the means to accomplish the goal and to give up your own ways and actually be a sacrifice that is acceptable. And you study the, the sacrifices. Where there's Leviticus. You have this detailed explanation of how sacrifice is to be done. And one of the things that happens early on in the sacrificial service is God says, okay, when you burn incense, you take fire from here and you use that fire to burn the incense. And in offering that incense, that is what's necessary for it to be acceptable. So Nadab and Abihu, a couple of the sons of Aaron, they're real excited to get rolling on this sacrifice thing. They go into the temple. They do everything right until they get to which fire to use. And they use fire that's not the specific fire commanded by God. And God says, oh, that's strange fire. And so, of course, I'm going to kill you. And then he kills them. Our response is to go, that seems a bit rough. The appropriate response is to go, what idiots? Not a rational service. Have they been listening to the words that God spoke? Because I'm pretty sure God did a lot of things to get attention. I mean, he had them in slavery, took them out of slavery, literally parted the sea for them to get across, drowned an army of chariot men from Pharaoh, and then, after that, had Moses go up to a mountain and get specific detailed instruction. And then we were really dumb, and we had this golden calf that we asked Aaron to make, and he made it. Bad move. He then says, I didn't make this. The people gave me gold. I threw it in the fire, and it came out. It's a beautiful calf. Really remarkable. That's what happens beforehand. These are the things that happen beforehand. Moses breaks the tablets, goes back up to the mountain, gets the covenant, comes back down. There's this extraordinarily detailed service that's given for building the tabernacle. The text of Exodus is literally, here's the instructions. Here's what they did. Here's the materials they used. And here's the accounting of the stuff they had when they finished making it. And then Moses isn't able to get into the tabernacle. 
And you go into Leviticus, the priesthood, the importance of making it into the presence of God. Detailed explanation of the sacrifices. Then, let's use a different fire. And our response, our response is to think it was a little bit rough of God. Seems a little bit uncalled for. Our natural tendency is to worship ourselves and to think that God is a good accoutrement for the human condition. Man is a good accoutrement to the divine condition. You are made for God. God isn't for you. You are for God. And so, when we offer ourselves as a sacrifice and say, well, God should take it because he should be grateful that I'm doing anything for him. That's the popular Christianity norm. Like, let's just be, let's be honest. You, you engage with people and people, if you, if you criticize the way anybody worships, you criticize the way somebody's trying to do something to the honor of Christ and they think you are nitpicking. Because they don't think it matters. Because the real battle is out there. Not in here. And not in your own heart. The real battle is out there. And so seeking reformation in the church is not viewed as an acceptable work. But judgment begins in the house of God. We have to present our lives, our bodies, as a living sacrifice. We have to be holy unto God, and we have to take the time to know the way he wants to be served. And let's be honest, if you don't want to take the time to know how he wants to be served, are you really devoted to the glory of God? And if you don't want to take the time to know how he wants to be served, are you really sacrificing? Or are you just doing what you want and calling it a sacrifice? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. If we apply the law without the goal in mind, that's not enough. This isn't just offer with an acceptable means. We have to have a sacrifice, it has to be holy, and it has to be with the right means. If we don't have the goal in mind, we will take the law and we will make it so that the law distort things. Remember how the Pharisees treated the Sabbath? They thought it was wrong to heal people on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you don't understand. The Sabbath is not meant to be this awful thing. Man doesn't exist for the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for man so that man will be focused on God. And so healing somebody, doing a work of mercy on the Sabbath, is not contrary to the Sabbath. In fact, doing a work of mercy is supportive of the purpose of the Sabbath. When you do a work of mercy for somebody, you're relieving them of a condition that prevents them from being able to use the Sabbath properly. What about works of necessity? The disciples are picking grains. And well, harvesting is work. And so they harvest 
in order to deal with their immediate need. They are doing work on the Sabbath where they are engaging with teaching and they're doing the work that's appropriate for the Sabbath and they don't have food. And so they eat of the grains. And that time is, is holy time. It's not supposed to be spent on working on harvesting. Just like the showbread in the temple was holy for the priests and not to be eaten by other people. And Jesus says, David ate the showbread when he needed to eat it. And so things that are holy, when there is another duty, like the preservation of life, including the preservation of health, including the preservation of strength in order to do the work, because right, they would have lived without eating these grains. They have more energy, though, if they're eating these grains to continue to do their work of the Sabbath. And so they're able to do this work that's necessary to make it so they can, with energy, do the rest of their Sabbath work of preaching and teaching. And so works of necessity allow things that are holy to be put to a more basic function. And so when we study the law as a system and view the goal, then we see the law and we read it rightly. And so we have to have the holiness, the goal, and we also have to have the detailed application of the law. If you just have the goal but don't have the detailed application, then you can justify any action for the goal. If you don't have the law, you can justify any action for the goal. And so they both are there, and you don't violate either. In order for an action to be proper, it requires that it be for the goal, and that it be by appointed means. Now, if you apply the law without sacrificing yourself, without giving up your self-worship, then you're going to just take the law and use it wickedly. You're going to try to take the truth of God and attach it on to an old wine skin. You're going to burst that. You're going to twist. So you're going to do things like focus on minor things rather than major things. You'll strain at gnats and swallow camels, right? Because you're going to find that convenient. You're going to make the traditions of men into things that are more authoritative than the traditions of God because you really worship yourself more than God. And so you're going to have the example of Korban, right? Where people can say, well, I have a duty to honor my parents, but anything I was going to give to my parents, I'm going to give to the temple, and I've given it to the temple, and now it would be sin for me to give it to you, parents. Right? This is a made-up tradition that is about worshiping self, and it's using things that are supposed to be the law or connected to the law to try to twist things for a self-worship. An acceptable sacrifice is defined by the law of God. God tells us the types of sacrifice. What ought to be sacrificed? God tells us how the sacrifice ought to be sacrificed. God tells us when each type of sacrifice ought to be given or not. The law of God must be meditated on day or night because it instructs us how to use our time, how to use ourselves, how to think about things. We're called to give our bodies as a sacrifice. We're called to give our bodies as a sacrifice that's entirely dedicated to God. And we're called to give our bodies as a sacrifice that's entirely dedicated to God. 
in the way that God commands. Now, the rest of the book of Romans is an instruction manual of how to sacrifice your body. And so, in presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice that's devoted to God in the way that God's appointed, that's our reasonable service. So look at that phrase, reasonable for service. Go down to 7. Logikon Latreian. Latreian is Latreia. It's an alteration of that, this idea of service. Now, a logical service, a rational service, is going to have content in our minds. We're going to have the gospel. We're going to have a goal. And we're going to have means that we're choosing. And this rational service is the only reasonable thing to do. Seeking another goal is futile and it destroys this distinction between the highest goal and lower goals. It makes everything meaningless. Selecting other means is absurd because God's the origin, power, and end of all things. He's designed all things for the purpose of working in a certain way. To select other means is to deny God's authority to say what is good and evil, and it's testing God to see if he will still fulfill his promises even when we reject his appointed means. Remember when Satan takes Jesus, puts him on top of the, to- the tower of the temple, and says, hey, jump off. The Bible says, you know, you jump off. Angels are going to keep your feet from stumbling against the stone. I mean, you're not even going to strike your foot against the stone, right? So you're falling really fast. It's not going to happen. So see if God's going to do that. Doing something that God has not commanded, doing something that God has forbidden, either of those, and expecting God to bless it, would be like Jesus jumping off the tower. This idea of doing something that God has not instituted to bring about the goal. God knows the goal. God knows about you. And he gave you means that were appropriate to the accomplishing of the goal and to your nature. Do you see how selecting other means is a denial of that? suggests, well, I have better means. I thought of better means to accomplish the goal and it fit better for me. So, the idea of, of the train, that term, bottom of page four. This word is used in five other verses in the Bible, in, in the New Testament. It's Greek. So, it's in John chapter 16, Romans 9, Romans 12, Hebrews 9, two places in Hebrews 9. Now, in John 16, Jesus is saying there's going to come a time when there are people who are going to kill Christians and they're going to call it a betraying to God. They're going to call it a service to God. And that's something that sounds like it's not related to kind of a temple service or a worship but here's the idea they're thinking that by killing these people who are blasphemers they're keeping the holy place clean sort of how Adam should have fought off the snake and kept him out of the garden he should have guarded that temple of the garden now when you look at the tabernacle the tabernacle has all of these elements in it that, that point to the, the creation itself. They have things that symbolize the heavens and things that symbolize the earth and things that symbolize the waters. And you see elements of, of the garden there with the lampstand, for example, being symbolic of the tree of life. 
Okay, so you see that in the tabernacle. The same thing in the temple. And the idea is that the garden is a sort of part of the earth, and the whole earth is supposed to be subdued and turned into garden and city. So that the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of God, and so those who know God are, are possessing God, and, and thereby God fills the whole earth. And that's the mission of the church. And so this idea of a, a temple service of guarding and keeping is there in John 16. Romans 9, 4, the middle of, of that text is talking about the Jews, where it says you know, the Jews were given the word of God and they were given the service, and it's listing things that are distinctive to the Jews. And the service in that context is the, the temple service, the tabernacle service. Okay? We have the word again here in Romans 12. In Hebrews chapter 9, it's used in two places, and this word is used to talk about the divine service in the first covenant and the earthly sanctuary. And then the second place in Hebrews 9, 6 says, preparing things by priests in the first part of the tabernacle when performing their services, their latreum. Okay? So this word is very much about the idea of a worship service. And so when that happens, what happens is, here's the normal response in evangelical churches. Oh, so all of life is worship, which means we don't have to care about the details of worship anymore. We are free from all of that. So I will do whatever I feel like and call it service to God. Now here's what the text is saying. You remember how detailed the worship service was in the Old Covenant? And how much God cared about the details of that service? You remember how he killed Nadab and Abihu for getting fire from the wrong place to burn incense? That level of care is the level of care I want you to apply in ruling your bodies as you give your bodies as a sacrifice to God. Which one do you think is the point Paul is making? Because all of life is worship, don't worry that much about worship, or because worship is so carefully guarded, your whole life ought to be worship to God. Therefore, carefully regulate your lives. Which makes sense in the context? Which one's a reasonable application? Which one's a reasonable service? And so then, there is this warning about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove. So you can prove if you don't prove, you might accidentally take fire from the wrong place. And if you knew that you were going to do it wrong, you'd die. You see some mighty careful fire selection going on. And so, this idea that we should have that level of care to give our lives as a sacrifice, and we should prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God Now, I've given for you as a doctrine to read on your own time. I've quoted, uh, copy and pasted the Westminster Confession, chapter 16 of Good Works. explains the same idea of good works here. That uh, Section 1 summarizes the main point I want you to take away. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. Ouch. The application of this, page 7, 
you have to govern yourself, your household. The church has to be governed, and the state ought to be governed by the Word of God. Govern yourself by the Word of God and your conscience, and you better inform your conscience so you can prove, prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And the same thing with the house, and then you apply the rod to it. And the same thing in the church, and then you use the keys. And the same thing in the state, and then you use the sword. So this is the ordering. And when we get to chapter 13, we're going to be looking at this applied to the state. And so we're seeing that built out. And this is, we're looking at what is that reasonable service. The only way we know what's good is by the word of God. The only way we know what is acceptable is by the word of God. And the only way we know what's perfect, complete, mature is by the word of God. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would cause us to be devoted to you. We would be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. We ask that you would do this thing for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Christ's name.